But um, if you're, this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you to Good News Church. My glasses are a little bit foggy. Welcome you to Good News Church and our church family. This is a wonderful church, by the way, if you're visiting with us. And that is evidenced in the fact that they tolerate me, that I still have a job here. So I just want you to know, it's a very special group of people. But welcome back also, the rest of you, to our series on the Gospel of Luke, which is all about the life of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. I told you last week um, that we, we had reached a turning point, a very important turning point in the Gospel of Luke. And chapter 9 was that turning point. And the verse that typifies that, right down to the verse, is verse 51, where Jesus says this. It says, it says Luke says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, right, his departure, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And I told you, I looked it up in my Greek text, and the word order and everything, the literal translation in the Greek is this, his face he set to go to Jerusalem. That's the tipping point in the chapter, in the, in the ninth chapter. But the chapter nine is the tipping point for the whole gospel of Luke, because at that point, that's where Jesus makes his decision to go to Jerusalem. That's where it is. The first week of this series, I told you that Luke's gospel can be divided into four parts, not four equal parts, but four sections. Number one is the introduction of the Son of Man. Number two is the ministry of the Son of Man. Number three is the rejection of the Son of Man. And the fourth is the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of Man. In this first section, we see events leading up to the birth proceeding and leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, the angels and the witness of the angels and many other witnesses to the coming birth of Christ. There are other events, like such as uh, his childhood events, the witness of John the Baptist, and the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in that first section. Part two, the ministry of the Son of Man begins with Jesus being widely accepted as he started his public ministry. The gospel is preached in this section. The kingdom of God is at hand. People are healed of diseases. Demons are cast out. The lame walk. The blind see. Lepers are cleansed. And the dead are raised. Jesus has power and authority over all of those things that I just mentioned. He even explains to the scribes and the Pharisees at one point that he is Lord over the Sabbath day. And the final word in the interpretation of what that means, the law. He has authority in all those. Also in part two, Jesus selects the 12 disciples or slash apostles and is actively preparing them to be his apostles. Apostles just means sent ones. Apostolos is the word. It's the counterpart of it in Latin is missio, like missionary. So an apostle is a missionary. He does this. Jesus prepares them by the example of his life and his actions. Signs, wonders, and miraculous um, acts of compassion. He teaches the scripture and uses the parables to communicate kingdom principles, like loving your enemy, loving your neighbor as yourself. Last week was the sending of the 12. If you remember, I told you that it was a training exercise, right? Do you remember that? It was a training exercise. We also saw in that chapter the feeding of the 5,000, the confession of Peter, you are the Christ of God, the cost of discipleship and what that means, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, and Jesus prophesies about his coming death and departure. He says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, 
and raised on the third day. We closed out last week with some very strong words from Jesus in the last verse, verse 62. If you remember, we also sang a song with it. He said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We had a time of dedication singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's what he's saying there. So chapter 9 is the pivotal chapter that moves us from that second section, from the ministry of the Son of Man to the rejection of the Son of Man. This is the pivotal chapter. Chapter 9 was. And the pivotal verse, as I said, was verse 51. His face he set to go to Jerusalem. We all know what happens to Jerusalem, right? His suffering, his crucifixion and death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's where he's decided to head, and that happens right there in verse 51. He says, it's time. Before he was like, it's not my time, right? It's not my time. Now he's saying, it's coming. It's getting close. I'm headed there. So today, chapter 10, um, today is chapter 10, and it starts off with another training exercise. Another sending, but this time it's not the sending of the 12. It's the sending of the 70. And you're saying to yourself, the 70 what? And I'm saying, well, the 70 disciples. And then you're thinking, well, I didn't know there were 70 disciples. And you would be right. A lot of people don't know that there are 70 disciples, but there actually were 70 disciples and even more, even more. Back in chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus went up on to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer, all night, didn't sleep. All night in prayer. Verse 13 tells us that the next morning he called all, he says, he called all the disciples to him and chose 12 of them to be apostles. So what's that mean? There were others, right? He called all the disciples, but then from all the disciples he chose how many? 12 to be apostles. Verse 17 that comes before that, it tells us that there was, after he came down, there was a great multitude of disciples. So there were many more than 12 and possibly, I think, Many more than 70. On the morning of the resurrection, Luke chapter 24 verse 9 says that the women reported what happened at the tomb to the 11 and the rest. There you go. To the 11 disciples and the rest. Who are the rest? Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 1 verse 15, it says that Peter was speaking to a gathering of brethren at the upper room area numbering 120 120. That was the day before Pentecost. Those were all disciples. That's the way that it reads. So Jesus had a large following of disciples, not just 12. Okay? The 12 were his special inner circle that he chose to be apostles. But the way I see it, I think that these other 70s were also apostles. It doesn't use that word, but that's just my opinion. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, you listen for it, of chapter 10. It's the sending of the 70, and I just want you to notice how similar it is to last week and the sending of the 12. There is a difference right away that you will see, and it is that he sends them two by two, which he doesn't do with the 12. So listen to chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now after this, the Lord, listen, appointed 70 others. 70 others, and sent, the words apostello, like apostle, and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, he says, go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet one another, and, and greet no one, excuse me, on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If the man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he says that to those who receive him. Verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest of you. Yet be sure of this to them too, those who didn't receive the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight today, O oh Lord. May these words of Scripture and the way they fall upon our ears, may they help us to understand you more fully and to understand ourselves more fully and what it means to follow you. Lord, give us ears by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church and let that sink deep into our minds and our understanding. For it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So they go out in teams of two, right? Jesus is urgent about uh, the great need. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So beseech the Lord of the harvest. And he says, oh, by the way, it's going to be dangerous. Okay? You're going to be lambs among wolves. Just saying, right? So be careful. Be careful. And then he tells them, don't take anything with you, just like he did with the 12. So there's no money, no bag, no shoes, no nothing. And stay with people along the way, he says, and eat whatever they feed you, right? That just burst and, and reminded me of my days when I was on the road, traveling and singing and preaching, driving all over the southeast in my Ford Econoline van, which I personally put carpet in. <laughs> and I was singing... And speaking at churches and conferences and camps. But for me, okay, in those days, it was a real treat to stay in a hotel, okay? Because most of the time, I stayed in people's houses, either the pastor's house or the deacon's house or someone's house. And they would feed me, and I would eat whatever they set before me. Not because I was very knowledgeable of what Jesus just said in the text, but because of what my mother said to me, right? My mother says, you don't go to somebody's house to eat. You eat what they put out right? Because it's rude not to. So that's what I did. My nephew's here, little Gaga is who I'm talking about. So, so I would do that, but it was easy for me, you see, because I'm easy. I eat anything, trust me. I eat and everything, right? The only thing I don't eat is liver, because it makes me gag, okay? And raw oysters. Can't do it. Too much like a booger. I'm sorry. I just can't eat. Can't eat raw oysters. Can't do it. Anything else, though, I'm good. But Jesus, when he said that to them, I could relate to that. I was, oh, that's, that's how I felt when I was out on the road. Uh, in verses 12 through 16, things get really rough and tough. Jesus shares some very hard words about the justice and judgment of God. Okay? What we are about to read today literally is a message of fire 
and brimstone. It's hell and condemnation. It's get right or get left. Get on or get off. Repent and turn to God or it's going to be what it's going to be. And what he says what it's going to be is eternal separation from God is what we, what's, what do we call that? Hell, exactly. Mark describes it as the place where the fire is not quenched and where the worm never dies. You don't want to go there. Trust me, you don't want to go there. So listen for that message in verses 12 through 16, but I'm going to jump back to verse 10 and read from there because it leads into it. Starting at verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest of you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that Sodom? You know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Totally destroyed. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were over on the coast by the Mediterranean, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, which means being sorry and willing to turn your life around. That's what that means. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Peter's hometown, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, which is the place of the dead, which again is what we call what? Hell, exactly. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So let's dissect this passage, this passage of very hard words and try to understand what's being said here and why. In verse 16, Jesus tells the 70 disciples, he says, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, who is God, who is the sender of the Savior, right? Who sent Jesus into the world to save the world. So you're rejecting God, you're rejecting his gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes it very clear, if you reject me, you're rejecting the Father, and it will not go well for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. It will not go well for you. It will be worse than if you were in Sodom, which is, was completely destroyed by fire and brimstone. I, I would imagine it was a lot like um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan. If you've ever seen pictures of that, just everything was burned up. Flat, utter destruction. He's saying it's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's saying something. Those are, those are hard words. So let me say a few things that may help us to understand this section of Scripture because it's easily misunderstood. Some people will read this passage, um, mostly unbelievers and skeptics of the Christian faith, will read this passage and see it as Jesus and the 70 disciples condemning the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and other cities, condemning them to hell and destruction. That's not what this is about at all. That's not what this is about. This is not a condemning message. This is a message of warning. And that's different, isn't it? It's a message of warning. This is tough love, is what this is. This is speaking truth, even though it's not convenient, right? Jesus and the disciples are not condemning people to hell and eternal separation from God. 
Jesus and the 70 here want to save people from eternal separation from God and hell. That's what this is about. They want to save those people. Just last week in chapter 9, when James and John wanted to call down fire out of heaven on that town in Samaria, you remember, because they wouldn't receive Jesus? You remember? You remember what Jesus said? He didn't go, woohoo, yeah, let's burn them up. No, he rebuked them. He rebuked them. And what did he say? He said, I did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And I told you that was very similar to John 3.17, which says, for God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? Jesus and the Christian faith is not about sending people to hell. Jesus and the Christian faith is about saving people from hell. Very important distinction, right? That's the whole reason Jesus came. That's why he was born. That's why he came. Um, maybe you remember a couple of diagrams that I drew in my Back to Basics series that I did in January. And one of those, if you remember, it had a, a circle up there, and it was the earth and humanity. And then there was a line that went across the top, which symbolized our lives. And at the end, it branched off. And it went up, and there was heaven. And then the bottom, do you remember that diagram? And it was hell. And the life, it said, on the top of the line, it says, if you do enough good things, you're going to go to heaven. And if you do too many bad things, you're going to go to hell. And I told you that most people who are not Christians, they think that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. God doesn't sit there and draw some arbitrary line between who's good enough and who's not good enough. And the ones that are good enough, he's going to send them to heaven. The ones that are not good enough, he's going to go to hell. No, no, no. We are saved as an act of grace by trusting in Jesus and who he is. He's done everything that's necessary for our salvation. And our part is just to trust that he did that and to trust in him as our Lord and Savior and receive him as our Lord and Savior. The other picture I drew for you was a word picture of John 3, 16 and 17. And I told you there was this picture of this ship, like the Titanic, okay? And the water looks like this. I'm not very good at art. It's, it's much better when I describe it to you than, than if I were to put it up there. So they're in the water. The ship is halfway down into the water. There are people in the water. There are people on the ship. And the name of the ship is SS Humanity, okay? And then the water, it's marked perishing, okay? So these people have either perished or they're in the process of perishing or they're going to perish. But all of humanity is perishing in the state of perishing, okay? All right? And then there's this Coast Guard helicopter. It was yellow, by the way, that comes over the top. And on the side of it, it says God because that's what it symbolizes. And there are lines coming down from the helicopter. And at the bottom of those lines are the round lifesavers, you know, like you see Debbie offered me lifesaver actually right before the message. But these are those ones on the ships, you know. And on those lifesavers it says Jesus. It says Jesus. And some people are grabbing a hold of them and being lifted to safety, and some are not. Right? So it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, which was perishing, right, that he gave his only begotten son, lower down, Gave Jesus so that whoever believes in him, grabs hold of Jesus and trusts in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That's why he came. That's a picture of John 3, 16 and 17. But it is also a picture, okay, by way of explanation of John 3, 18 and 19, which, which explains why some people reject God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. There are some people on that ship that just say, 
no, I'll wait for the next, I'll wait for the next thing, you know. No, I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm okay with my life. So let me read John 3, 18 and 19. It says, he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not judged. You're good. He who does not believe has been judged already, right? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, he's not received Christ. He's not received the gift that God has provided. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. I don't understand why someone doesn't want to be a Christian, because there's nothing like it in the whole world. Nothing like it. It's grace and mercy that we receive because of Jesus. And we just need to trust that he did come to do what he did. He came to be who he is, right? I don't understand that, but some people do. They say, no thanks, I'll wait for the next boat. Well, there's no next boat. I'll wait for the next helicopter. There's no next helicopter. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. And somehow they reject God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. I don't understand that. I did not. I received that when I was 18 years old. I received that. Jesus didn't come to send people to hell. That's not Christianity. Jesus came to save people from hell. That's Christianity. And if somebody doesn't agree with that, send them to me, okay? No. No, you, no. see, I told you what to say, so you, you take care of it. You take care of it. Tell them that. Tell them that. Because that is the truth. Okay, that is the truth. That's the truth. Those passages that we just read are very hard, aren't they? They're very hard. But those words are not condemning people to eternal separation from God. They are words of warning. Words of warning. We're perishing. They're words of warning about eternal separation from God. So repent and believe in Jesus. Change your heart and trust in him, God's only son, to rescue you as an act of grace. Luke 10, verses 17 through 24, is the happy return of the 70. Um, They're stoked. They're fired up, and rightly so. Uh, They say this. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You see, Jesus gave authority and power to them to do some of the things that he did. And when they're out there, they're preaching with power. They're casting out demonic forces. They're healing people of diseases. And they are amazed that they are doing it. They're actually surprised at it. But Jesus is stoked too. In verse 21, he, it says that he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. He was doing a happy dance. Not figuratively. Okay. But, I mean, I mean yes, figuratively. Not literally. He was doing a happy dance inside. Jesus, okay, was proud of them that they had done so well. And part of the message here is that like he did with them, okay, Jesus has also passed his power and authority on to us because we are the church. His spirit, the same spirit, is in us. His power is in us, the church, now. Jesus is continuing to do what he started with the disciples, the salvation of the world and the spreading of the kingdom of God. The spreading of the kingdom of God. So listen for that as I read chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. And follow along with me. It should be up front here. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, we, um, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, 
I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What does that mean? That means the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That means the disciples and Jesus were coming against the gates of hell and the power of evil because we are the kingdom of God. You remember I told you when Jesus was casting out demons and they're like, whoa, 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 they're like this. Evil was afraid of Jesus. Jesus wasn't afraid of evil. And what Jesus has done with us is we shouldn't be afraid of evil. Evil should be afraid of you because Jesus is in you, right? And Jesus said, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. The power of the enemy is the evil one, Satan. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That's great, but don't rejoice in that. He says, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And that very, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Did his happy dance, right? And said this, he says a prayer, he says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. In other words, people that think they're so smart, oh, no, I'll wait for the other boat. Yeah, not so smart. Not so smart. So he says that he's revealed it to infants, right? To children, to everybody, not just for the wise guys and people that think they know it all. He says, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one, no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal it. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, okay, he said privately to just his disciples, not sure if it was the 12 or the 70 or the 82, whatever, all of them. Or the 120. He said, blessed are, your eye, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. So this has been a long time coming. Not a long train running. That's the Doobie Brothers. Okay? That's a joke. This has been a long time coming. This has been coming for generations, okay? These disciples, he's saying, you're seeing things that many generations only hoped to see, and you're seeing them, right? The promised Messiah of God, the Savior of the world, the coming of God's kingdom on earth, you are here in real time experiencing what they only hoped to see. The next five verses are a lesson in itself, but it also functions as an introduction into a parable, a very famous parable. These passages have a cross-reference to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, where Jesus labels these the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And then he said, the second is like unto it. It's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost, but it's right there. Those two commandments. You've heard me preach on this more than a few times because it's part of our mission statement, right? So I'm not going to take a whole lot of time here because you've heard it many times. But I'm going to make an effort to be concise and efficient. So listen to verses 25 through 29 and listen to it as an introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, And a, so a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Because this guy knows the law. He's a lawyer. He's like a Pharisee. And he answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, which means to rationalize, to, you know, see just exactly what he needs to do. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Okay, that last verse introduces the parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? This parable, what it is, is it's Jesus' way of helping the lawyer to answer his own question. That's what Jesus is doing in this parable. And of course, what the lawyer is trying to do is narrow the field, right? <laughs> He's, he wants to know, who do I have to be nice to, Right? Who do I have to love as myself? How far does this neighbor thing extend to from the obvious, like choices like my family and my friends and maybe another few good Jews? That's what he's saying. Who do I have to love like that? Okay? So let me read for you the answer to that. And Jesus trying to help him understand his question, starting in verse 30, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Follow along with me, please. Jesus replied to that question, and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I told you, that doesn't mean south, it means down in elevation, and it's a very extreme elevation in this case. Jerusalem is 2,474 feet above sea level. Guess what Jericho is? 902 feet below sea level. So by my math, you'll have to check me on this, I think it's about 3,400 feet. So he's going, he says he's really going down, right? So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he saw him, and he passed him on the other side. He ignored him. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, he came to the place and saw him. He saw him. What's he do? Passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, who was on a journey, wasn't even in his own area, he was on a journey, he came upon him, and when he saw him, he saw him too, but listen, he felt compassion. That's the difference. He actually cared. Okay? The other two were breaking the law of God. And came to him and bandages up his wound, pouring oil and wine on them, his oil and his wine, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, like the Samaritan's inn. John, that's for you, wherever you are. Samaritan's inn. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come back, I will repay you. It's on me. Put it on my tab. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. For us to understand this parable completely, we have to try and hear it through the ears and the mind of the lawyer. He's basically a Pharisee. He's a Jew who is a student of God's law, the Old Testament. So let's break it down in basic form from his perspective. Try and see it from his perspective. Number one, the man who got robbed and beaten within an inch of his life was most likely a Jew because he was going 
down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he probably lived in Jerusalem or in Judea. Okay, so he was a Jew, probably a Jerusalem Jew. Number two, the people who did not help him were highly religious, devout Jews. A priest and a Levite, who's a worship leader, who probably served in the temple. Of all the people you would expect to help that person, of all the people, it would be them, right? That's, that's important. They know the law, okay? They knew Deuteronomy 6.5, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Priests and Levites took great pride in knowing the law, teaching the law to others, and doing the law. But in this parable, what Jesus is saying, they're not doing the law, right? And here's the point. The lawyer who asked the question is like them, right? He's in the same category as the priest and the Levite. They are devout religious Jews who believe in God and know the law. And here's my point. That's why they're in the parable. That's why they're in the parable. Jesus is a master teacher. That's why he made it a priest and a Levite. They're like him, and he's like them, right? Number three, the third element is the good Samaritan. As I pointed out last week, in Jerusalem, uh, the Jerusalem-type Jews in Judea looked down on the Samaritans. You remember when I said that? They looked down on them as substandard Jews, half-breeds, less than acceptable Jews. And those Jews did not like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans did not like them. Because they were high-tone Judean Jews who thought they were better than everybody else, holier than thou. So it was not a good relationship. They didn't like each other, okay? They didn't like each other. So number four, the fourth element in this parable, the fourth element of this parable is the two people that the lawyer would have expected to help that man don't. They just don't. They don't. Instead, they, 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 don't show, they don't feel compassion for him at all, and they don't show mercy. But instead, they walk away. They walk way around him and ignore his obvious need. If anybody needed help, right? This guy needed help. But the Samaritan, oh, the Samaritan, the very one, listen, hear it through his ears, the very one the lawyer would never expect to stop and help a Jerusalem Jew does. He does. In a big way. In a big way. With all his own stuff and all his own money. And here's a special twist to the, to the story, to the parable. The Samaritan felt compassion and showed mercy to someone who would probably not return the favor. You know what I'm saying? If the roles were reversed, very likely the beaten man would not have done the same thing for the Samaritan who helped him. The lawyer's hearing all of this, right? And while all of this is going through his thought process and whirling around in his mind, Jesus asks the question, the $10,000 question. He drops the bomb, right? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He blew his mind. He blew the lawyer's mind. But to the credit of the lawyer, he answers correctly. He says, there's no other answer, right? He answers his own question. The one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go and do the same. And what he's saying there is, don't be like the guys that are like you. 
Be like the guy you don't like. And what, what, what the difference was, he felt compassion and he showed mercy. Be like that. Be like that. And did you notice that Jesus put the shoe on the other foot with that term neighbor? All through this parable, who are we thinking is, is going to be the neighbor? The guy that's beaten within an inch of his life, right? And needs some help. But that's not it. That's not it. Which of the three was a neighbor to the man? The Samaritan is your neighbor, lawyer. The guy you don't like, that's your neighbor. And also the other guy. You need to love and have compassion on all people. On all people. But he got it. He got it. Hopefully we get it. Hopefully we get it as well. Chapter 10 of Luke ends with the story of Mary and Martha. They are sisters. This is the end of, of the chapter. And Martha invites Jesus into her home and proceeds to busy herself with serving Jesus, doing this and doing that, cooking this and cooking that, pouring this and pouring that. But Mary, her sister, just sits at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word, hanging on every word. Martha gets very irritated with Mary and her lack of help in the doing. So Martha complains to Jesus and just listen to what happens starting in verse 38. It says, now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her home. And she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Mary was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. She's complaining. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, 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 you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Only one thing. It's being with him, right? For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Now, there's not much that I could add to that, but of course you know I will. Right? You know that. I don't want anyone to misunderstand. This doesn't mean that doing things for Jesus is not a good thing. Doing things for Jesus is a very good thing. All right, But what he's making the point is your relationship with Jesus, spending time with the Lord is the better thing. It's the more important thing. That's the message here, right? And here's my two cents, okay? This is not scripture. This is just my opinion, okay? My interpretation, okay? So don't, don't misinterpret, okay? Our doing for the Lord, the way I feel about it, our doing for the Lord is always more fruitful and fulfilling when it is an outgrowth of our time we spend with the Lord. You hear me? that our doing for the Lord, doing things for God, is always more fulfilling and it's more fruitful when it comes out, when it's an outgrowth of us spending time with Jesus, growing, praying, being with him, hanging on his every word and learning to be more like him. So what I want you to do is let that soak in for a minute. Let that fall deep into your ears. And let us pray. Lord, thank you for the parable of the Good Samaritan. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke and all that we're learning because I'm learning a lot. I thank you that um, it was written down for us so that we can learn, that we can understand. 
Thank you for your teaching, for your parables, for your spirit. Thank you that you've given us power and authority to do the things that you did in many ways, to to bring this world, to deliver this world, and to preach, and for people to come to you because of that. Help us to be the church. Help us to be the church. Help us to be the church, the apostles, the missionaries that you want us to be. Loving those who don't know you. And trying to present that in a way that they can understand. In a loving way. As one beggar sharing with another beggar how to find bread. Not out of pridefulness. But as a beggar, one beggar sharing with another beggar where to find life. We pray for this in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.